0: Well, the mystery revealed is the title of the message this morning. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. As we've studied through Ephesians chapter 2, which we've spent the last seven weeks studying through Ephesians chapter 2, we've observed what Paul refers specifically to in our text here this morning as the mystery. In Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, really, collectively, everything that Paul has said to this point, what he's been doing is describing, delineating, distilling the mystery. And then what he does in chapter 3 here is he says, everything that I just said, that's the mystery. You want to know what the mystery is? It's everything that you see in chapters 1 and chapter 2 in a broad sense. I think more specifically, Uh, If you want to narrow it down, what is the mystery? We look back at chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. But in a broad sense, everything that Paul has said to this point is the mystery. He's been distilling it, teaching it. I was thinking about this this week in my study. We all love a good mystery. Do we not? Most of us do. There is something innate about us as human beings that loves, is utterly fascinated with things that are secret and hidden and thus need to be revealed or discovered. We're fascinated by that. God who created us understands that thoroughly, so thoroughly that he has hidden mystery in absolutely every facet of life. I mean, there's an element of hidden information in every conceivable subject under the sun. Let me repeat that. There is an element of hidden information, things that we just don't know, that at the end of the day, it's just a mystery. There's a sense that that is true about every single conceivable subject that we could set our minds to study under the sun. At some point or other, sooner or later, we will come to a point where we just have to toss our hands in the air no matter what our study is and say, I don't know. I just don't know the answer to that. We're ever confronted with mystery. It's this sense of mystery that makes life, at least in part, so fascinating. God designed it this way. As a matter of fact, wise Solomon in Proverbs 25 he penned these words. He said, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to search them out. It's the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to seek them out or to search those things out. The glory of kings is to discover that which has been hidden. In our text this morning, Paul reveals a mystery that puts everything, that every, every word that renowned mystery novelist, Agatha Christie has ever written on the bottom shelf in comparison. The mystery is made clear in verse 6. Turn your eyes there just real quick. Chapter 3, verse 6. Paul, in one sentence, encapsulates the mystery for us here. And he tells us, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the mystery is the uniquely diverse, yet gloriously coalesced living organism we call the church. Gloriously diverse, yet intricately coalesced, a living organism comprised of both Jew and Gentile, but without any distinction, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, one body of whom Jesus Christ is the head. The mystery The mystery of God's redemptive plan and purposes has been made known to the saints. It was previously in all generations and in all ages, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, it was hidden, but it's now been revealed and made known to the saints. And it is this mystery of the gospel that Paul was made a minister by the grace of God and that he gave his life to preaching. This morning, there's three points on your outline, three things that we'll consider Number one, we'll look at the prisoner of the mystery. We're going to look at Paul, the man and his ministry, the prisoner of the mystery. Secondly, we'll look at the revelation of the mystery. Paul tells us it was revealed to him. And thirdly, we'll conclude if we get there with verse 6, Paul explains the mystery. The prisoner, the revelation, and the explanation of the mystery. Next week, we'll turn our attention to the preaching of the mystery and the purpose of the mystery. All that just to wet your appetite a little bit for what's to come. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. I want to encourage you to stand if you have the ability with us this morning in reverence of God's word. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pins the following words in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. For this reason I, Paul, Is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel? You may be seated. I want to draw your attention to the first point in your outline. We're going to look at the man and his ministry, the prisoner of the mystery. Just in case you should get discouraged if 25 minutes from now you happen to glance down at your watch and notice that we're still on point one. It's by design and not by default. Okay, I'm heavy on the top end of this morning, just for your encouragement. The prisoner of the mystery. But Paul says, for this reason. That's looking back language, by the way. Paul says, for this reason, or as a result of everything that I've said so far... He's looking back to the truths that he's already expressed in his letter, namely those, I think in a broad sense, everything he's written so far. I think in a little more narrow of a sense, specifically chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And it was in those verses, just let your eyeballs fall back to chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Just kind of be there for a moment. It's in those verses that we learned that God poured out unprecedented blessings. On the Gentiles. I mean, from the time of Abraham to Christ, some 2,000 years, God's blessing in that window was directed primarily to the nation of Israel. The Gentiles were excluded in every way. You see, the Jews considered the Gentiles rebellious, outcasts, because they didn't bear in their body, they didn't bear the mark of circumcision in their flesh. Rebellious, outcasts. Paul also tells us. But the Gentiles were strangers of the covenants of promise. They were without hope of the Messiah, and they were without God in the world. But everything changed in verse 13 of chapter 2. Everything changed. Everything changed in verse 4 of chapter 2. Those two words, but God. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together in Christ. Everything changed, but God. And Then we get that but there again in verse 13. Everything changed. A mystery that had been previously hidden for ages and generations was now revealed in Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, You see, as a result of the redeeming work of Christ, God has reconciled Jews and Gentiles to one another, creating one new man in the place of two, and he's reconciled both groups in one unified body, the church of whom Jesus Christ is the head. That's the mystery. Everything the Old Testament prophets knew, though that mystery existed in seed form, it was encapsulated in a shell. But when Jesus Christ stepped on the scene, that mystery was revealed. It's all clear in light of Christ and his redemptive work. God reconciled both groups, Jew and Gentile, in one unified body to himself through the cross. What this meant was, it meant that the Gentiles were no longer strangers and aliens, but rather fellow citizens of God's new people. They were now members of his household, and together with the Jews, they were being built into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. That's where we ended in verse 22 of chapter two last week. Wonderful positional truths. I mean, who who are you in Christ? You I mean, just look back at chapter two. You I mean, citizens of heaven, members of the household of God, heirs. Co-heirs with your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. But even greater than that, Paul writes that we are co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is our elder brother. What wonderful positional language. My spiritual position in Christ. Wonderful language there. Now, what's hard for us to understand from our more distant vantage point today, of course, we're, we're not living in the time when Paul wrote this. It's a little bit difficult for us to put the pieces together in our hearts and minds about what was going on and what all these truths meant. You see, from our more distant vantage point today, it's hard to understand. As glorious as these truths are, these truths cut against the grain of everything that both Jews and Gentiles had presumed for centuries in other words, it was hard for the Jews to accept the fact that the Gentiles, who they viewed as uncivilized and undomesticated, were now granted the same access to God as they had. That was a hard pill to swallow. What, what do you mean, those uncivilized people? They're on the same playing field now as we are? Yeah, that's grace. 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 But it was equally challenging and hard for the the Gentiles to understand. You see, they had no previous covenantal relationship with Yahweh. And so it was hard for them to understand what all these gospel promises and what all these wonderful gospel truths really meant for them. They were aliens and strangers. They, they didn't have exposure to the covenants of God. And so you, you bring all this wonderful positional language in now. And tell, tell them that in Christ, sealed in Him, redeemed in Christ, washed by His blood, you are now co-heirs. You're now citizens of heaven, members of the household of God. But there is not centuries of preconceived understanding about what any of that means. So it's equally difficult, different but equally difficult. For the Jews, how in the world are you going to tell me those dogs, those undomesticated Gentiles who aren't even circumcised, are on the same playing field with God? And the Gentiles' struggle was, how do we even know how to understand these glorious truths? What do they mean for us? And so Paul, a shepherd feeling the weight of nurturing the sheep under his care, he prays for his mixed flock. Look at verse 16 and the following. Chapter 3 verse 16. What you have there is a prayer. Paul's praying for his mixed flock, both Jews and Gentiles in the same church redeemed by the same blood of Christ, and Paul will pray that the Gentiles, look there beginning in verse 16, will be strengthened in God's power. Look at verse 17. He prays that Christ will dwell in their hearts through faith, that they will be rooted and grounded in love. That's that's horizontal love, by the way. That's relationship within the body of Christ. And that they may understand what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of Christ. That's the vertical love. And that it surpasses all knowledge. And then look how he finishes off his prayer there. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, Paul prays that for this growing church there in Ephesus. Let me ask you this question. I'm always challenged and convicted when I I read the Bible anytime, but specifically when I read how Paul prayed. I mean, look at the earnestness and the specificity with which he prayed. That challenges me. That challenges my prayer life. Do I pray with that earnestness? Do I pray that specifically for my brothers and sisters in Christ? That's convicting for me. Challenging. Before Paul gets to his prayer, what I want you to notice here, look at, look at verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul starts out these three words, for this reason. And then everything by and large that exists after that word, for this reason, is a parenthesis until Paul picks back up in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He resumes with the same language, for this reason. What happens is, is Paul sets out to pray for the Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 3. And right as he launches out into prayer, he realizes that he needs to restate some things that he's already said. He needs to undergird some of the deep theological truths that he's already stated, already taught. And so what he does is he momentarily presses the pause button on his prayer, which he doesn't pick back up until verse 14. Everything that exists between chapter or between verse 1 and chapter 14 is a parenthesis where Paul is explaining in more detail what he's already taught. Something diverts his attention right after the opening words of verse 1. Perhaps Paul heard the clank of his chains and it reminded him of his present imprisonment for the gospel. Whatever the case, the text before us this morning is, again, largely a parenthesis. It's almost as if Paul stops mid-thought, mid-prayer because he realizes that the Ephesian believers need to better understand the very glorious truths that he had taught in chapter 2 and that he's getting ready to pray for them at the end of chapter 3. He reemphasizes, expands upon the glorious implications of the gospel. I was thinking about this this week. Some of the teachers, biblical teachers, who have had the most profound impact on my life over the years are those teachers who beat the same Biblical drum over and over and over. In other words, they say the same thing over and over and over again. I need that. I don't know about you, but I need to hear the same foundational gospel realities and truths over and over and over again for two reasons. One, because I can forget them very easily, but number two, I can presume on them and begin to take them for granted. I need to be reminded. And that's what Paul does in our text here for this morning. He begins a prayer and then he pauses and he says, but I'm going to remind you of the implications of those glorious truths, your position in Christ, what you have in Christ that I've already stated in chapters 1 and chapter 2. And it's no problem for me to do that, by the way. Good teachers know the value of repetition, especially when the subject matter is difficult. And the subject matter is difficult here. Now, it's difficult in a different way for the Jews than it is for the Gentiles, but it's difficult nonetheless. None of us comprehensively understands God's truths. God's truths are so vast that we will never fully understand them in their their entirety. I may have said this before, but friends, I don't think when we get to heaven that we will immediately and instantaneously, exhaustively know an infinite God. I think we will spend eternity learning of an infinite God. Now, all that without the encumbrance of sin, praise the Lord. But I think we'll spend eternity learning, learning about his glory, his righteousness, his justice, his his majesty. Even things that we come to understand more clearly, spiritual truths that we come to understand more clearly, we need to be reminded of them from time to time. As a matter of fact, Paul, writing to the Philippians, said this in Philippians chapter three. He said, to write these same things to you, it's no trouble for me and it's good for you. to write the same things to you, to beat the same drum over and over and over again. It's no trouble for me and it's good for you," Paul said. Peter said it similarly, likewise in Second Peter chapter one. He said, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I live in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall all of these things. That's what Paul's doing here in Ephesians chapter 3. This week and next week, we're going to look at reminders, things Paul's already said. And he's saying them again because they're of paramount importance. It's no trouble for me to remind you again. You know, in the building and construction world, uh, we hear from time to time the word over-engineering. We have some engineers in here this morning. To over-engineer something, this is a definition from a non-engineer, by the way. Over-engineer something means to design it and to, con- to construct it in such a way that it is stronger than necessary for its particular application. Let me just uh, brass tacks here. That bridge that crosses the Mississippi River over there, hey, we want that guy to be over-engineered. Like, we want the concrete to hold more weight than we think it can hold. We want it to be rebarred better than what we think it needs. It needs to be over-engineered. So that when we put human lives and all kinds of weight on it, it doesn't collapse under the weight. We want to over-engineer it. And though it's an imperfect illustration, I think Paul, in a sense, wants to over-engineer the Gentiles' theology. He wants to ensure that their theology is robust and that the pilings of the gospel truths that he has labored so diligently to teach and preach them are sunk deeply in their hearts and minds. He wants to over-engineer their theology. And so, upon launching out into his prayer for the believers in Ephesus, Paul momentarily presses the pause button to repeat some very important theology before resuming in verse 14. Look back at your text now. Look at verse 1. If you can remember back, Paul opened this letter by stating his credentials as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look how he refers to himself here, though, in chapter 3, verse 1. He refers to himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Matter of fact, twice in this letter, once here in chapter 3, verse 1, and then once again in the very next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul refers to himself as a prisoner for Christ. He actually closes or bookends this letter as well in Ephesians chapter 6 by stating that he was an ambassador in chains. Paul knew well what it meant to be a prisoner for Christ. At the very time of his writing this letter, Paul had been incarcerated for some five years, and most recently he was on some form of house arrest in Rome. I Meanwhile, he's writing this letter, incarcerated. And in Paul's absence, here's Paul, incarcerated, some form of house arrest, writing to growing believers in the church there at Ephesus. In Paul's absence... His persistent enemies, the the Judaizers, were no doubt descending on the Ephesian church, arguing that the Gentiles indeed needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. It's, It's not grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. You need to add something to it. Friends, there is not a more damnable heresy than that. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's the theology of your Bible. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But in Paul's very absence here, you have some Judaizers who are slipping back into the church, telling these young Gentile converts, no, you need to add circumcision to what you've already done. You want some engaging reading, flip over when you get home tonight and this afternoon and just read the book of Galatians. Paul takes them to task in the book of Galatians over this very issue here. But one of the methods of these Judaizers was to discredit Paul to discredit his ministry. Matter of fact, I think it's quite possible that Paul is referring to these guys, referring to this gangly group of religious antagonists when he speaks of the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We don't know that for sure, and I'm thankful that the Lord leaves that open because its application is very broad. Paul prayed three times that this thorn in the flesh would be taken from me. And then Jesus replies... Brother, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response then I will boast all the more gladly in insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I think it's quite possible that Paul is referring to this gangly group of Judaizers, these religious antagonists, in that prayer that the Lord would remove from him that thorn in his flesh. Because here's Paul trying to to tie gospel knots, so to speak, on, on the hearts of these young believers. And these guys are coming right back behind him and untying the knot. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. I know my own. My sheep know me by name. I'll lose not one of them. These Judaizers would argue If Paul's really God's apostle, if he's really God's man, if he's really God's mouthpiece, if he's really God's appointed herald of the gospel, then why is he locked up in a prison cell somewhere? I mean, surely God's appointed man, surely God's appointed apostle, surely God's appointed mouthpiece for the gospel would be free to do that. But here's Paul locked up in a prison cell. That must mean that he is not God's appointed apostle. They would use that type of thinking to tease the young Gentiles. Why would God keep his appointed messenger confined? But Paul, on the other hand, argued that his imprisonment was divinely orchestrated and that it actually served the purpose of advancing the gospel, thus authenticating his authority as an apostle. I mean, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul said this, he said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, my incarceration, has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Similar language there, as we see here in chapter 3, verse 1, my imprisonment is for Christ. And he goes on and he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You had the Judaizers saying, surely God's man wouldn't be locked up. And Paul says, no, God put me here, and actually my confinement is authenticating my apostleship, and it's serving to advance the gospel. Let me ask you this question. What kind of perspective does a man or a woman have to have to make a statement like that? What kind of perspective... Does a man or a woman have to have, in order to make a statement like this, Here I am in chains for Christ's glory and for the advancement of the gospel, let it be so. Who says things like that? I'll tell you who says things like that. People who are convinced of the sovereignty of God. And not only are convinced by it, but cherish it. People who cherish the sovereignty of God say things like that. So countercultural. So otherworldly are comments like that. Made by people who cherish, deeply cherish, the sovereignty of God. You see, at the very moment of his penning this letter, Paul is tethered. To a Roman guard. But Paul knew that he was a minister of Christ, brought with his precious blood, and entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. You see, just as Paul was Christ's servant, and Christ's apostle, and Christ's minister, so he was also Christ's prisoner. In all his relationships, in all his relations, Paul realized he belonged to Christ. Friends, do we realize that? Husbands, do we realize in our relationship with our wives that we belong to Christ? Wives, in our relationship to our husband, do we realize that we belong to Christ? In our relationship to our employer, do we realize and live in light of the fact that we belong to Christ? With our, do our neighbors have any idea that we belong to Christ? Paul knew whom he belonged to, and he considered the sovereign, saving arrest of Christ on his life to be greater than the arrest of any civil authority. Therefore, he refers to himself, this is interesting, not as a prisoner of Rome, which he was currently, but he refers to himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. A a prisoner for Christ Jesus. You know, though we may not physically be bound in prison, We are all spiritually bound to Christ. Prisoners, you could say. And what a privilege that is. Matter of fact, Paul oftentimes referred to himself as a doulos. It's the Greek word slave. He would oftentimes refer to himself as a slave of Christ. The translators of some of our modern Bibles have sought to insulate that word doulos, and so it's translated in some of our Bibles, bond servant or even servant. But doulos, every single time, means slave. Paul considered himself to be a slave of Christ. Therefore, when he was in prison, not a prisoner of Rome, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm his slave. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're now slaves to righteousness. He says this in Romans 6, 16 and the following, You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either that of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and that you have now become obedient to the heart, to the standard of the teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Such are you and such am I in Christ. Doulas, prisoners, so to speak, tethered to him. How glorious is that? Paul understood and cherished the sovereignty of God. Instead of blaming Christ for entrusting him with the ministry that led to his imprisonment, instead he glories in his circumstances. How are we doing there? I mean, undoubtedly in a room this size, there are some less than desirable circumstances. We have two options, friends. We can blame and and begrudgingly point a finger at the one who, in an ultimate sense, has divinely orchestrated all those circumstances, or we can glory in them as belonging to Christ. He's a good, good father. In biblical counseling, I oftentimes have to help individuals consider the size of their circumstances versus the size of their God. Here's what I mean by that. If your circumstances stand larger than or loom larger than your view of God, then you will be tempted every single time to toss in the towel of despair and discouragement and frustration But if you have a high view of God and his sovereign purposes for your life, whatever they may be, you can rejoice in whatever circumstances may be less than desirable. You see, it wasn't that Paul knew all of the divine purposes behind his current suffering. But here's what he did know. Mark this, friends. He knew that his now and his future were in the hands of an all-powerful, all-wise, loving father. You know that? Your now and your future. We may not get out of verse 1 today. Paul knew that all the details of his imprisonment, as well as their outcome, whether it led to his death or whether he was acquitted, were in the hands of the one who was pierced for him. Whatever your circumstances, in Christ, you know him savingly. You're in the hands of the one who was pierced for you. That changes everything, doesn't it? That perspective changes everything. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, begrudgingly, no way. Joyfully, yes. Why? Good perspective concerning the sovereignty of God. Cherished it. I would encourage us to be a church that cherishes the sovereignty of God in all things. Even when Paul couldn't see the end, he trusted the one who holds both the beginning and the end and causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. It's only when we have that high and right and lofty biblical view of God and an eternal perspective that we can count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. You see, Paul saw his circumstances through the lens of God's sovereignty and thus submitted to God's sovereignty over his sufferings. How about us? Do we submit to God's sovereignty over our current sufferings, whatever they may be? Look at verse 2. Paul goes on in verse 2, and here's where he begins the digression from his prayer. Look there. He says, I assume that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, it's important to note that Paul's not asking a question here. He's not saying, well, I I assume you've heard. You have, haven't you? Uh, That's what our, this is difficult to translate from Greek to English here. It's a bit challenging. A more literal translation might be this. I'm sure you've already heard. I'm sure you've already heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. You see, what Paul communicates here in verse 2 is the authority for his teaching. He's been teaching some difficult theological truths, some challenging theological truths, challenging in a different way for the Jews than the Gentiles, but challenging nonetheless. And so the question is, well, what authority do you have, Paul? What authority do you have to step in here and tell us that those Gentiles are now on the same saving plane as we are? Well, here's my authority, Paul says, I'm a steward of God's grace. Paul refers to himself as a steward. What comes to mind when you think of someone who's a steward? Raise your hand if your thoughts went immediately to an airplane. I think of a steward as someone who has had something valuable entrusted to his or her care. Something that they don't own, but, but temporarily entrusted to their care. That person, he or she, is a steward. You see, Paul didn't choose his apostleship. He didn't choose his ministry. God arrested his heart and appointed him to ministry. You realize that? Paul didn't choose his ministry. He didn't choose his apostleship. God chose it for him and appointed him to ministry. Friends, contrary to popular thought, This may may strike your ears a little bit challenging here. But contrary to popular thought, God is not a gentleman. In our sense of the understanding of that word. If you have any questions about that, let me just direct your, your thinking back to the Damascus Road. Sometimes God goes where he's not invited. Here is Paul, hater of God. Heading to Damascus to kill Christians. And God knocks him off his horse, blinds him for days, and then entrusts him with the ministry of of reconciliation, with the greatest mystery in all the Bible, to preach it and proclaim it in all faithfulness and in all purity. That wasn't on Paul's radar. And praise be to God for that. Because through the process of spiritual multiplication, one Christian Leading a non-Christian to Christ. Leading non-Christians to Christ. So we sit here today. Last week in chapter 2, specifically verses 21 and 22, glance back over there. It's the the last two verses before we moved into chapter 3 here. Paul described the church with two phrases. Number one, a structure that's joined together. That's phrase number one. And then in verse 22, a dwelling place for God. It's interesting to note that the word structure there and the word dwelling place in verse 22, those words share the same root word as the word stewardship Paul uses here in our text. And that root word in the original language is the word oikos, and it means house or home. It's interesting. The people of God, The church are the dwelling place for God. and So God tells us here in verse 2 that he is a steward. He's a manager or a caretaker of the house. It's been entrusted to him. The task that's been entrusted to his stewardship is the care and provision for the body of Christ. He's been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel. And as a steward, Paul saw that as his responsibility and he gave his life for it. Friends, let me, let me just remind us of this. Every single Christian, that includes you and it includes me, every single Christian, irregardless of your spiritual gifting, has been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. You want to jot down in your margin there 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It would be a good place for you to reference later. Every single Christian without exception is responsible for, to be a herald of the gospel. Now, some of us may have larger ministries. Some of us may have ministries that aren't quite as large. That's irrelevant. God God works all that out. But every single Christian without exception is responsible because every single Christian without exception in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 20 and the following is referred to as an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador is someone who speaks on behalf of. Are we doing that? I mean, we can be known as a church for many things. And I pray that we are known as a church for many things. I pray that we are known as a church that holds high the sufficiency and the authority of the word of God. Here we stand. I mean, we're ready to stick the sword in the rock, so to speak, when it comes to the authority and the the sufficiency of God's word. We will not bend. We will not bow. I mean, t- take me to prison. That, that ought to be our... Now, we don't need to go drum that up. But we're not willing to waver when it comes to the sufficiency and the authority of God's Word. But what would it be like? What would it look like if the chapel realized, individually and collectively as a body, that it was our responsibility to make the gospel message known? to those in our spheres of influence. We're ambassadors for Christ. You can't reach everyone, but you can reach some. All believers are stewards of God's grace. Just like all believers are prisoners in a sense of Christ, all believers are stewards of God's grace. Every believer is a steward of the calling, the spiritual gifts, the opportunities, the skills, the knowledge, and every other blessing that he or she has from the Lord. All of those things belong to the Lord. We're just stewarding them. We're just managing them. They've been entrusted to us. And let me tell you this, everything that has been entrusted to us, we will one day give an account for. Right? Number two, the revelation of the mystery. We'll be quicker here. Paul thought it necessary to continue to affirm his authority for teaching such far-reaching truths as the oneness of Jew and Gentile in Christ. And he does that in verse 3 by saying that God gave him the truth by revelation. God revealed the mystery by way of revelation. That word mystery, it's the Greek word mysterion. It refers to something that's beyond natural knowledge. It has to be made known by divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it can't be known. It's a mystery. It's unknowable, incomprehensible, hidden from all men unless God reveals it. Paul says, God revealed this mystery to me. He made it known to me. It was divine revelation. Peter speaks of this divine revelation in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says no prophecy of the scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's divine revelation. Paul's receiving the message directly from God himself. That's the authority that he has to speak and to teach such far-reaching truths as the oneness of Jew and Gentile in the church. It was revealed to him. Now, I have double zeros up there. Wish we had time to talk more about Revelation. We need to be very careful when it comes to Revelation. Heresy after heresy after heresy has been born because men or women think that God has revealed something to them that is outside the confines of Scripture. Friends, if you want God to reveal something to you, if you want to hear a, quote, word from the Lord, let's just open our Bibles. You see, the reason so much heresy exists in our world is because men have closed their Bibles and opened their ears. If we want to hear from God, we just open His Word. Divine revelation in this sense is not a privilege that's given to us today. God is no longer giving men divine revelation apart from His Word. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's all right here. The canon is closed Here's what that means. It means the Mormon church isn't hearing directly from God, the charismatics aren't hearing directly from God, and the Pope isn't hearing directly from God, aside from what he has already inscripturated in his word. We need to be careful today when it comes to revelation. Careful what you read. Mysticism, a vein of mysticism, runs in much of what we read uh, off of the bookshelves of mainstream Christian bookstores. Careful, be attentive, be discerning, be alert. Look at verse 4. Notice that Paul says, when you read this, there's an assumption here that the church at Ephesus and many other churches throughout Asia Minor who would have read or had this letter read to them would read it. There's an assumption there. Paul says, when you read this. Friends, let me ask you this question. Are you reading this word? God breathed, divinely inspired, every single one of it, every single word of it. Are you reading it? Are we taking the Word of God in? Are we being nourished by it? Is it changing our thinking? Is it changing our attitudes? Is it changing our speech? Is it changing our marriages? Is it changing our employee-employer relationships? Is it changing our neighbors because they're seeing it reflected in us? Is it changing us? I can guarantee you that it won't change you if every Sunday we go home and we close this book and we put it on the counter and we come to it next Sunday, and we blow the, the fine film of dust off of it and bring it here and open it again. I mean, there's 167 other hours in a week that we need to be being nourished by the Word of God. And Paul assumes here, when you read this. I mean, here's another thing that I would love for the chapel to be marked by, The distinctive, those people meet with Jesus. You know, that was a distinction of the early followers of Christ, right? Standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin, These men took note that those apostles had been with Jesus. When you read this, much time in God's word results in much resemblance to God's son. You can't walk in the light with your lantern unlit. Look at verse 5. There's tons here, we'll be brief. Paul says the mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. You see, before the church age, no person, not even the greatest, a prophet, had anything but a glimpse of what Paul has declared here in Ephesians. All the Old Testament passages that relate to this mystery can only be fully understood in light of New Testament revelation. In other words, before the incarnation, the life, the death, and the victorious resurrection of Christ, none of the Old Testament hints to this mystery could be clearly perceived because they were all looking forward to Christ. Where we stand today, we look at Christ. He's the fulfillment. The mystery is made clear in Him. The mystery is made clear in the gospel. Number three, the explanation of the ministry. We'll be brief here. Literally, Paul, in one sentence here in verse 6, takes everything that he has said thus far and encapsulates it into one sentence. Verse 6 is essentially a summary of chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, but even in a greater scope, everything Paul has said to this point. But Paul says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, what the mystery is communicating to us is that the cross has accomplished much more than the salvation of a group. It has accomplished the salvation of individual sinners, It reconciled Jews and Gentiles to each other and to God in one redeemed body, the church. Notice what Paul says about the Gentiles here. Their inclusion. He says, now they're fellow heirs. They were once excluded once strangers to the covenants of promise, but now they have the exact same legal status as God's chosen people, the Jews. They have the exact same marvelous, boundless inheritance in Christ that Paul has already mentioned. Every single believer is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, this is this is total inclusion language here. There's one body. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He said for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body baptized there not water baptism converted. We were all converted into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink from one spirit. Here's the implication. There are no second-class citizens in the body of Christ. None. No second-class citizens in the body of Christ. You see, our human birth determines our ethnicity, but our spiritual rebirth unites us as members of the same body of Christ. Partakers of the promise. Remember, at one time, Gentiles were outside of the covenant. They had no claim to the promises of God. But now, in Christ, they share all the glorious uh, realities, all the truths that the gospel promises. And all this is guaranteed by a faithful God. Now, having said this, I'm going to open a can of worms. I'm just going to leave it open, all right? Everybody appreciates that. Having said that, this is another message for another day and another time. But the church as glorious as it is, has not replaced Israel. We call that replacement theology. I would reject that. The church, as glorious as this organism is, one body in Christ of whom he is the head, has not replaced Israel. God has made promises to national ethnic Israel that he will make good on. If he doesn't make good on those promises, then we should question any promise that he's ever made to us. God will make good on all his promises. They are yes and amen in Christ. That's another message for another day. Here's what you need to know. The church hasn't replaced Israel. Look at this. This is all through Christ and all through the gospel. Friends, there's no other way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Have you come? Do you know him? Savingly. Not are you a church member, not do you know things about him, not, not do you own a Bible with some gold lettering stamped on the front of it that bears your name. Those things are all great. But they don't do anything for you savingly. Have you come to the foot of the cross and there left the burden of your sin, confessing Christ as Lord, he is the one who was crucified, risen, and now reigns and is soon returning to capture up his bride, the church? when all things are summed up in him, our great head. You know, one of the greatest mysteries to me is that God even saved me. That's a mystery. That's a mystery.